0: welcome to the pacey performance podcast today i'm speaking to sports scientist and phd student at liverpool john moore's university shane malone and sports scientist and member of the gaelic sports research center shane mangan tuning in to episode 180 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So really excited to bring you the two Shanes, so Shane Malone and Shane Mangan, who are two experts when it comes to uh, sports performance in Gaelic sports. So a really interesting chat, which I ended up uh, cutting in half because of the detailed answers that came from the two Shanes and carried on for more than pretty an hour and a quarter. So it kind of made sense to chop it in half and. Um, and put it in a two-parter so the next part so part two will be coming next week Um, so in part one we discuss uh, the game demands of Gaelic football and hurling and all the things that come with that with regards to uh, the monitoring of those game demands and then from there we kind of transition over to a little bit of uh, reliability and validity talk around GPS and the uh, load monitoring tools that, uh, that they're both using uh, at the uh, at the Gaelic Sports Research Centre, as well as in their studies, and then we kind of move into the more performance analysis arena, which is where Shane Mangan comes into play, and we talk about the, um, the integration of performance analysis uh, with uh, with sports science. Then we have a little chat with Shane Malone around. Um, metabolic power which is part of his uh, his PhD. So really interesting chat which I am sure I'm positive you will get tons out of.
1: The relative thing research has shown it's probably it's relative to the individual. For me, relative probably more to do with like injury analysis and sort of injury associations rather than match play. Like match isn't one on a relative terms, it's one in an absolute term. So for me and in Gaelic football I always Analyze, GPS, match play in absolute terms.
0: But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Vald Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar and the all-new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdperformance.com uh, or follow them on Twitter at ValPerformance. So their all-new Human Track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Kinect and 4 IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results with some more to come which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So, if you like, I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit ValdPerformance.com or follow them on Twitter at ValdPerformance. Also, sponsoring this episode today is ForceX. So, big thanks to ForceX for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit ForceX.com. But also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com forward slash 139, where co-owner of Force Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, It's certainly not a sales pitch for Force but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re- with regards to the, the software. So, if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. So, without further ado, over to the podcast with Shane Malone and Shane Mangan. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance podcast. So, today I'm delighted to be joined by the two Shane, Shane Mangan and Shane Malone. So, welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks for having us, Rob. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? Thanks, uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, anyone that does not know who you guys are, starting with Shane Malone, I uh, just want to give us a bit of a background, uh, education, what you're currently doing, um, yeah, past cool. experience, etc. cetera. so So, uh, Started an undergrad
1: degree in uh, sports science and health in IT Tala. Uh, Obviously finished the four years there. Uh, Then moved on to PhD studies in Liverpool John Moores University uh, under the direction of Dominic Dorn. And then uh, I'm looking currently at uh, Gaelic football demands uh, across both training and match play and also have a bit of a specific focus on metabolic power for my sins in my PhD. Uh, I've been lucky to be involved with a number of Gaelic football teams. So previously, I would have been involved with Mayo GA and currently involved with Longford GA. Uh, act as the sports scientist there, uh, I was lucky to be brought in by their strength and conditioning coach at the start of the season, Owen McGuire, uh, I suppose, uh, currently a member of the Gaelic Sports Research Centre in IT Tala which is directed by Karen Collins. And uh, yeah, I've been lucky to have a couple of publications, I suppose, in Gaelic football and a number of other sports over the past probably three or four years. Uh, I suppose the centre itself is lucky to work with a number of teams. And I suppose uh, I'll pass over to Shane, who can give an intro to himself as well.
2: Thanks, Shane. Um, yeah, I'm quite similar to Shane in the fact that I did a uh, four-year undergraduate degree in Tala in sports science as well. Um, when I finished that, I took a year out, and I worked as a sports scientist uh, with a, an intercounty team here in Ireland. Um, I also worked in an adventure centre, so doing things like archery, rock climbing, ziplining, and all that sort of outdoor adventure stuff. Um, in their time off, as well, I did a bit of a pilot study, and um, that got me into a master's by research in IT Tallaght. Then, uh, towards the end of 2016, uh, under Kieran Collins, as well. Um, and spent a year doing that. and um, would have been working with a, a couple of teams over that Kamobi team and, um, Gaelic football team. And onto the current, uh, date. Um, I'm just in the process, the final process, uh, stages of transferring to a PhD in Cork Institute of Technology. Um, so I'll be working with Con Burns and Keane O'Neill then there. Um, and at the minute, uh, my main sort of job is working with uh, London uh, Gaelic football team. So I'm a performance analyst for them. And also, um, I would do a bit of work with another couple of intercounty teams in terms of data analysis. Um, but like Shane said, uh, we're both members of the Gaelic Sports Research Centre. And, you know, it's, 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 been, it's been good to us so far anyway in terms of uh, creating links with different people getting experience and stuff like that.
1: And the the Research Centre, I suppose, is kind of, it's been sort of set up by Karen Collins, who has been good to both of us in terms of supporting us through our sort of our undergrad and postgraduate studies to date. And the Centre's actually been kind of lucky to be probably one of the the first in Ireland to have full access to GPS and have full access to inter-county teams. So elite Gaelic football teams, elite hurling teams, elite camogie teams. And uh, that's sort of how the centre has kind of, I suppose, done so well over the past number of years in terms of there's not that many students within the centre, Rob, that are actually funded for their, their postgraduate studies. And we've been lucky to date to, I suppose, get, get 40-ish manuscripts published in sort of peer-reviewed journals on topics varying from like training load to game demands to, say, even monitoring load during training camps or even looking at... Like typical demands across various sports, but also, I suppose, getting into the, the nitty gritty of injury workload relationships and even the contextual factors that relate between GPS and even other performance analysis areas that maybe Shane and hopefully we can chat about later. But I suppose overall, I suppose, from the two of us, the centre has been really, really good to us. And we've been just lucky in a way that we sort of landed in IT to all I did our undergraduate studies and Kieran sort of had the belief in us to take us on to postgrad.
0: Perfect. So, anyone that doesn't know um, Gaelic football, hurling, etc., do you want to talk to us a little bit about the the kind of what it is and and the kind of intricacies of the kind of cultural side of things that people might not be aware of?
1: I'll I'll, let Shane take that. Probably, it's
2: probably better. Yeah, I suppose for for people, Gaelic football is probably easier one playing at the minute. Um, So. A lot of people probably wouldn't have heard of it before, but it's pretty much a mix between Australian rules, football, and rugby. Um, it's played on a pitch about 145 meters long by 90 meters, so a bit bigger than a soccer pitch, bigger than a rugby pitch, and it's 15 aside. side. Um, so in the game, you can score by two ways. You can kick it over the crossbar, and between the two uprights, they're sort of like rugby goals. So you kick it over, over the crossbar, you get one point. If you kick it in the, the net, you get three points. Um, you, when you have to, when you're running with the ball, you either have to bounce the ball every four steps or bounce the ball off your foot, which is called a solo every four steps. Um, so that's the way of carrying the ball up the field. You can, you can handle the ball with your hands where it's different to, to football. Um, you can kick the ball forward. You can hand pass the ball forward as well. So that's where the difference is with rugby. You would come into it. Um. Hurling then is pretty much the same rules, only instead of a big ball, you have a small ball. Uh, It's called a slitter. And you also have a stick that you can hit the ball with and hit the other players with.
1: They decided decided on the hurling end of things to give players a bit of a weapon to use. (laughs) I I suppose um, hurling's probably a bit more, it's kind of been a little bit more popularized by a couple of, say, soccer people, soccer players tweeting about how they find the sport sort of crazy to watch and sort of the speed of the game. So probably to put that into context, if you think of the Schlitter as like a small hockey ball, probably is the best way to... Yeah, hockey or cricket. Hockey yeah. or cricket ball. So, but what you can do is the ball can move like 100 metres per second, nearly like or 100 metres once it's hit off the the hurley, the, the hurley stick.
2: Yeah, it's, it's the fastest field sport in the world. Yeah.
1: Um and it
2: can be, it's quite hard to keep track of if you're if you're not familiar with the sport. Yeah. Um,
1: Performance but, analyst nightmare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like if you look at, I suppose, if you look at both sports, so there's also, you've obviously Gaelic football, you've hurling. Uh, there's handball there as well, which is part of the Gaelic codes, but then there's the, the female versions of it. So you've uh, female Gaelic football and you've also then camogie, which is the female variant of hurling. Um, all sports have an elite and a sub-elite level. Uh, so you have the elite sort of inter-county level, which is kind of like each county is represented by the best players within that county. So like you'll have say like Dublin will play Kerry and Kerry will play, say, Mayo, for example. Like each county will face off against each other. But then the sub-elite level is within each county there's clubs. And uh, so like, for example, we're lucky to work, both of us, with a, a local club called Ballybowl and St. Andrews. Uh, so they would supply their best players potentially to the Dublin senior football and senior hurling teams. Uh, the thing, I suppose, with Gaelic football, it's probably a bit different to other sports, is that you can be taken onto an inter panel, but you can be dropped off an inter panel as quick as you're taken on. But once you're dropped off, you go back and play club level straight away. So you go back to that sub-elite level. Uh, the calendar is also a bit mad, so maybe Shane will bring you through a bit of the the yeah. issues with the Gaelic football calendar and the Gaelic calendar as it is.
2: Yeah, I suppose if you if you want to relate it to football it would be like uh having international level games running the whole time where your best players are away on in international duty and then they could come could get dropped off to be back playing at club level. Um but yeah, the way the the calendar starts, um teams will Play teams will start training probably December time. Um, there'll be pre-season tournaments from Jan, Jan, January, China start of January to the end of January. Um, at the uh, last weekend in January, then the league, the league format will start. So there's four different divisions. There's 33 teams, yeah. 33 teams that compete in Gaelic football anyway. Um, so yeah, they'll, they'll be divided into four different divisions. Um, the league will continue on until another three weeks time so probably the end of March we'll finish up obviously with the snow last weekend that's going to be pushed back a week um, but probably even further into yeah. April yeah it'll be mid-April before it's finished and then um with the Inter-County Championship so the Championship is sort of probably the probably equivalent of the Champions League really it's, yeah. it's what the teams so
1: like I suppose the All-Ireland would be the equivalent of like the Champions League of Gaelic football so put into context, uh, there'd be like a provincial sort of round. So like, for example, Leinster would have all, all the teams that are based geographically within Leinster would play off against each other and then you'd have a provincial winner. And then they go into, uh, well, they go into now a, 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 a thing called the Super 8s, which is a new sort of addition this season, but previously they would have gone into a quarterfinal final. Uh, if you got knocked out of the provincial championship, though, you go in to a thing called the back door, and you'll basically play off against teams who've been knocked out of uh, other provinces. So it's kind of a the calendar is kind of a funny one because like players will probably play between probably if you include challenge games, maybe twenty games a season, but of that, the competitive games is actually quite small in comparison to other sports. So these guys actually train quite substantially throughout a week and. Like There's probably arguments to say that there's so much training going on that coaches potentially find it hard to fill spaces within training with specific drills. They find themselves repeating themselves. Sort of similar to, I suppose, that, that long pre-season that's in Australian Reels that everyone kind of complains about. Gaelic football is kind of like that, but at particular times during the season, like there'll be no games for a long period of time. Teams will be training, and then... You have the problem, well, not a problem, you have club fixtures that need to be fulfilled that inter players have to fulfill. Uh, So it's a bit of a logistical fun anyway, and training road management and management of players is an, an intriguing sort of dilemma, I suppose, in Gaelic football and Ireland.
0: And all around this, people aren't, well, players aren't getting paid for this.
1: No. no, not officially. No, not officially. Anyway. Not officially, they get,
0: sorry. Not officially,
1: yeah. <laughs> they, get, they get expenses. Yeah. Uh, so what would happen is that uh, players will travel obviously to and from training and they get X amount per uh, mile, I think, as far as I know it is that they travel. Uh, what you have then, so obviously you have professional players to play AFL, uh, Gaelic footballers work nine to five and then will train. And like, for example, an example from my end would be uh, some of the male footballers who would be based in Dublin. Uh, they would potentially work, say, seven in the morning till three o'clock in, in the midday to get off then to travel to a bus, uh, which would be based somewhere in Dublin. We would then travel down to Mayo, which would be a three-hour journey. We would train for maybe an hour or 90 minutes. We might do a bit of video analysis after uh, we would then leave Mikhail Park at around say half ten eleven o'clock at night do our three hour journey back to Dublin and then obviously I'd have the lovely job of a GPS report and whatever else needs to be done post up. but the players they ultimately have to get up at seven in the morning to go back to work so the recovery and regen I suppose in Gaelic football is is a limited and a sort of a priceless commodity that players find it hard to control uh like there's cases where players have been sleeping on buses or just creating little beds for themselves to get some a nap between training and getting back to their car to go home to see their partners. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a fun sort of it's management been commitment. process. It's a yeah. massive commitment.
2: Man. Yeah. Like uh, a lot of teams now would train probably five to six five to six nights a week, including games. Um so in terms of the workload it'd be quite similar to professional players Um, but
1: obviously then they have they have their own work jobs as well we'll probably delve into it later in the podcast so there's some of the weekly loads we're seeing from GPS and some of the session RP loads and even time spent above X percentage of heart rate that we're seeing with these guys but like they're very comparable with your professional athletes and in some cases probably due to the amount that they train they're probably fitter aerobically than some of your professional team sport athletes like like the level of commitment that these guys put themselves through and the level of probably hardship is probably a and not a probably a right word to say just for uh to make an all-around final or to make a league final or a, a provincial final is even just a talk for your county at a, on a weekend is massive like
0: So I'm just going to take a very quick break in the chat with uh, Shane and Shane. So obviously part one just been a kind of scene setter on the game demands uh, of Gaelic football. Coming up in part two we discuss metabolic power and get a little bit deeper into the reliability and validity of some of the tools that uh, these guys are using for their studies and their work in the Gaelic Sports Research Centre. But just before we get into part two, just want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't checked out an episode that I did with uh, Ian Dunican, which is in episode uh, 174, it really highlights why Fatigue Science have become the go-to company for anything with regards to sleep tracking. So the reason that is, and something that Ian goes into in a lot of detail in episode 174, is the biomathematical modelling, which is involved in the software uh, from Fatigue Science. So the ability to um, recommend certain sleep times, certain uh, times when you should be awake during during prolonged travel. So that really helped me in my recent trip to to Australia, which was um, run through the model by Ian before I went. So if you want to listen to episode 174, that gives you a lot more detail with regards to the modeling uh, within the Fatigue Science Ready Band. Um, But if you want to learn more about fatigue science in general, you can visit their website at fatiguescience.com or visit them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So some really cool guys behind the scenes, um, doing some really interesting stuff with some uh, some really big teams. Which unfortunately um, can't always say can't always say the names of these guys. Um, but some really interesting guys in America uh, and uh, and also the UK. So definitely check them guys out. So over to part two with Shane and Shane, and hope you enjoy. So while we're here, while we're here, we might as well talk about it <clears throat> and talk about the commands of the game. Can you just give us a bit of an overview of what you guys have, obviously the, the research that's come out, but obviously your um, eyeballs as well because you're heavily involved in it. Just the, the, the game demands to give people an idea of, of what's going on during training and during ga- games for these guys.
1: Yeah, so I suppose, as I said sort of at the start, we were kind of lucky at the, the Gaelic Sports Research Centre to sort of be involved with a number of teams and sort of probably one of the first uh Colleges or institutions have full access to GPS through, uh, at the time, it was VX Sport. Uh, We've also delved into other GPS technologies that we'll chat about later. But I suppose for me, what I've seen is sort of, obviously, there's a a bell-shaped curve for total distance. So you have five positions on a Gaelic football pitch. So you full back, you have the half-back line, uh, you have the midfielders, and you have the half-forward and full-forward. So there'll be three players in the full back, the half back, the half forward, and the full forward line. And you'll have two in midfield. That will say, that will depend on the province you play playing. Uh, so some teams will go very defensive. So they'll put, say, potentially 13 behind the ball, leave one tall man up top. But what I've seen is sort of from some of the, the data we've collected is these guys will relatively speaking do anywhere between, say, was around 112 to probably 130-ish metres per minute for total distance. So anywhere between, say, 7 and 9K, give or take. Uh, and they'll do about 1,600 metres of high-speed distance. So that'll be, that's distance that we clock over 17 kilometres an hour. Uh, we chose that because it was sort of related to the maximum aerobic speed sort of outputs of a general squad. Uh, in Gaelic football, we tend to keep our speed thresholds absolute sort of similar to Australian rules football. So they do about 1600 meters, which is roughly about 23 meters per minute. Uh, Shane's done some really cool work. So on contextual factors. So like from my end, what we found was there was a drop off in high speed running across both halves and quarters. And we found that distance sort of stayed pretty relatively the same across all positions, but that was kind of the first stage of the analysis. So, like game demands is one thing, we need to understand that each game sort of takes on a life of its own and depending on the time of the year, sort of your distances will change and that's sort of where Shane did some really, really cool work with some of the other data we were collecting with teams at the time. Yeah, um,
2: just following on from now, I suppose, um, yeah, we would have seen some instances where teams were setting uh, themselves targets to run in games like you have to run nine kilometers in this match to win the match and stuff like that. So we just wanted to look at it to see is there any truth to that really. Um, So we started to look at um, the match result and how looking backwards and see is there any interaction between the match result and the actual distances that you run in a game. Um, We did see in terms of when teams lost by big margins, they ran significantly less than you would in a win uh, in a small win or in a big win. But um, the general gist of it was that the closer the scoreline was, the more distance you'd run. Um, so it's, it's pretty logical in the fact that if when you think about it, if one team is attacking the whole time, then maybe the other team isn't going to get out of their half, they're not going to run as much. But if both teams are attacking and defended as much, there's going to, there's going to be uh, lots of transitions. So um, the distances that you run will go up. Um, Also we saw that as the year goes on um, that there's a a pretty much linear increase in the uh, demands of the game. So teams generally prioritize the championship and the championship uh, takes place between May and September each year Um, and from the league starting in January. So we we generally see an upward trend. Um, So it's probably due to the accumulation and training to the the higher level of competition and just game, the fact that game importance game importance and yeah and the teams. fact that you know teams are planning that's their main target for the season to win the championship um, what else did we look at we suppose we we started to
1: look at the relationship between technical and tactical it was probably something we, we, we'll, we'll chat about, about later, later yeah. so I suppose just building on from what Shane has sort of said there so if, Put it into context, we've seen sort of across halves that the, the middle three lines, we call them sort of the transitional lines, because half back, midfield, and half forward will sort of like be your main ball carriers, well, per se, I suppose, depending on what team you're with. So we typically see, like I say, kind of a 30% drop off in, say, spread running, so uh, across a game. But Shane's found that like that, ter- that 30% can vary depending on both the time of the year, the opposition you play, the level you're playing at. And also that drop off in halves that I originally first reported, Shane has sort of added to that now by saying that, yeah, okay, there might be a drop off in halves, but we need to consider both the team we're playing, the standard of competition or at the time of the year, when we're reporting back to our managers or reporting back to our S&C coaches because sometimes it's sort of the analysis is taken sort of out of the sports science realm and into the coaching realm where... Sometimes players can be brought up and held to account on the, the high-speed distance that they've done or the sprint distance that they've done. But I think we need to consider that, okay, that's that report in isolation, but also that the game we're playing, the competition we're in, and all those other factors, the number of contacts of the ball we've had, the number of kick passes, we've had the number of fails that have been committed, all will impact the running performance of our players. And Shane's done some really, really cool work on that in terms of linking some of the tactical stuff, I suppose, we as well delve into it yeah like I might other. as well chat about it now yeah so um I suppose I wanted to look at how the
2: style of play um style of play and I suppose the the technical performance relates to the the physical performance that you do in a match um so I think we did it for about five five different yeah, teams, five teams yeah. um over 52 matches I think yeah. um and just just looked at um some of the technical performance indicators, so in Gaelic football, um, you can pass the ball by kick-passing it, which is just with your foot, or by hand-passing it, which is hitting the ball with a closed fist. Um, so
0: in the last few years, there's been a
2: trend of teams to uh, favor hand-passing more because it's shorter, they can run with the ball, um, there's less skill involved really than kick-passing. Um, but it's more you're more in control of the ball um, so we saw that teams that hand pass the ball more would invariably run more so they can't the ball isn't travelling as much distance so the players have to travel that distance with the ball which is straightforward enough but then it has implications then for our teams uh, when they design designing their style of play when, they're, when the coach is thinking what style of play do they want um, if they want to play a hand passing game then they're going to have to be fitter to sustain the demands and um, we also saw then as well uh, for kickouts, outs so just like goal kicks in, in football, um, so where teams that favoured shorter kickouts would have to run greater distances while they're position-specific. So say, for example, the half-back line and the midfield line would have to run greater distances if it was kicked short. So if the ball was kicked long, they'd just be standing in the middle of the pitch. They could catch it there, but if the ball was kicked short, obviously they'd have to run shorter to get the ball, um, and then this has a knock-on effect then on the
1: under on running performance. Um, so yeah, yeah, I suppose. And then sort of building off now, we sort of I suppose if you think about it, sort of uh, an upside-down triangle. Like we want to understand broadly game demands first, then sort of what impacts it, and then. So as we wanted to understand like sort of a a worst case running period for these guys, so we did like a a moving rolling average analysis on uh, one particular team that we worked with and sort of a a one through ten minute rolling average. And what we found was that like your typical game demands would be probably what, say, maybe as a squad 130 meters per minute, maybe it might be 135 for a midfielder. But if you look at a a one minute worst case analysis, uh, it can be up to 250 meters for a midfielder. Uh, so, like, I suppose this has implications for how we train our athletes or how we train our Gaelic football players because these guys have to be sort of a well-rounded athlete in terms of just be able to run, kick, tackle, engage in contacts, jumps, pivot, turn, twist, and while also making game-specific decisions like so. We're kind of, probably, I'd say, probably realistically coming t- towards the end of our GPS sort of analysis of game demands, I think, maybe there's one Just or two. Up, yeah. We'll probably give up, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> we know a little, probably, we know probably not too much, but too we know much. probably enough to keep us happy in terms of what's going on. Like, obviously, we still have teams that wear GPS, but so we're probably trying to get into a bit more of the nitty-gritty, so, like, where the distance is coming from. Is a blind distance? Is a distance carrying the balls at distance, closing down a marker. And I suppose that's where sort of that video GPS integration probably comes in that hopefully we can talk about later. But that's sort of where we're going in terms of we're probably at the end of the road of the broad-based match play demands. And obviously, Gaelic football, we're probably moving towards that pure video GPS integration. And I know I'm chatting to other people in other sports like they nearly say that without the video, you're kind of just reporting load, really, and it's not really performance related. But Shane's done some cool work with integration of GPS into OR, which you probably chat about just to give you a broad understanding of what that's like. Yeah, um, yeah. So basically, um, what we want to do
2: is uh, obviously the GPS give you give you an exact location of where a player is at any one time in a match or should do anyway there
1: are uh,
0: specific
1: cases where it doesn't <laughs>
0: <laughs> we don't want we don't to get anyone sued though Shane no, no, no,
1: no. <laughs> but
2: um, yeah so uh, I just wanted to sort of feed off that I've seen some work done in basketball uh, where they've used uh, player tracking and sort of some of the work from Jamie Sempeau um, and in terms of tactical analysis. So we just, we've just we had a look at it uh, using OR, so pretty much you ex- export the raw data, the raw GPS coordinates into OR, and you can plot um, the player movements, say, in a given match. Um, so we'll be able to see a short little video of, or well, the full length match a video, of players uh, on the pitch, where they are at any one time. There'll be a clock, and it'll show what speed each player is running. Um, so... At the moment, I was just sort of on the the first level of that. Uh, We're just looking at it visually. So seeing what speeds players are running. Say, for example, when we we lose the ball or when we win the ball, is there a change? We can see where the the players are on the pitch. So are they working to get back? Are they working to get forward if they win the ball? Also in terms of uh, set pieces, so we can just see what our setup is like for set pieces. If you're videoing a match, um, you know you're going to be only focused Say for example, on one on one half of the pitch, if you don't have a GoPro, so it's useful in that sort of sense to get a view of where every player is, is on the pitch, and it's just integrating, it's just using that data that's already there, but in a, in a different way, I suppose.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to I'm just going to jump in there because I've got a couple of questions off off that little section. Firstly, um, something that you said right at the start, uh, Shane Malone, and that was the choosing absolute over relative. Why, why is that and what do you think the positives and negatives and what led you to going that way?
1: Well, really, Like it's kind of a, you can have kind of two thoughts and you can either compare everyone at just a baseline level. I suppose for me, uh, I've kind of two thoughts on this based on different sports I've worked in. With Gaelic football, for me, originally when I started and when we started our research, matches are one in absolute. So like, just because a player is quicker, He's going to beat that player, really, the player that's slower. So we just want to know we can compare everyone at a baseline level, so we can see we can get one positional trends, kind of benchmark everyone off everyone else, and we can understand the the absolute distances that players need to cover. Secondly, like the relative thing, research has shown it's probably it's relative to the individual. For me, relative is probably more to do with like injury analysis and sort of injury associations rather than. Match play, like match isn't one on the relative terms. It's one in absolute terms. So for me, and in Gaelic football, I always analyze GPS match play in absolute terms. Also, when we were looking at setting our absolute terms, we did sort of 1K time trials and yo-yo tests on our players. And sort of when we looked at group means and group distributions, uh, most of the... MAS or VVO2, depending on who you talk to, uh, came out at around 17 kilometers an hour for this, for this cohort. So we sort of set our high speed running at 17 kilometers an hour. Similar in a way to some of the Australian real stuff that's been published is that most of it's done in absolute terms. So that's sort of our thought process, very simple process, just to compare everyone to everyone else. So suppose the profile of the players is quite similar.
2: At kind of level, enough, yeah, uh, compared to rugby where obviously the position has a huge impact there.
1: Yeah, like I suppose if you're looking at most of the distribution in terms of body size and body compositions will be similar enough across the positional lines, Rob. So, like, okay, there might be differences in sort of max speed profiles, but during match play there's actually no differences and no significant differences in match speed profiles. So at the max speed they hit in match play, Across positionalized doesn't really tend to differ that much statistically. Okay, it might differ visually, but when you put it through stats analysis, it doesn't differ too much. So that's sort of where the absolute sort of came from.
0: Mm-hmm. And my second thing was when you're feeding back the context, obviously you're not going to, you wanted to give as much of a picture as possible, but how are you actually physically giving that information to the technical coaches? What's that process look like to integrate the two?
2: You know, it's, it's probably more of an, an, an informal thing, really. Uh, when you're sending the report, you could say, okay, we're, our high-speed distance is down by 15%, but we, we won the game by 10 points, so in the last quarter we eased off, you know, that sort of thing. Just sort of adding, adding the context there because otherwise then a coach could just pin it and say,
1: okay, we didn't work hard enough. Or you, can, you might see if you, if it's about providing for me, it's about providing the context all the time on the data that's coming through. So it's about okay, we're we're monitoring our players and we're happy with the, the data that's coming off a GPS unit and we're happy to feed that back to both strength and conditioning coaches and also management. So when we look at kind of the conditioning coach, uh, he's really interested in like say planning load, game comparisons and worst case work rate for players. So we'll have like sort of a conditioning part of reports where They'll have the plan versus the actual loading, how that looks on a weekly basis. We we conditionally format some of the reports into uh, green, amber, and red for coaches. And then if you look at kind of the manager, he kind of wants to see everything, nearly. But it's about, he's obviously not going to be a qualified sports scientist, but it's about bringing him to a level where you can have that open, honest conversation with him where, look, we did 15% less high-speed running in this game. We won by 10 points. You made four substitutes in the, the fourth quarter. That's why our fourth quarter running performance is down. Uh, and sort of not make the coach, say, pin it on a wall and go, well, Jimmy, a cornerback, did a K of high-speed running. But that high-speed running might have been blocking down a ball, for example. And that's where that sort of video GPS integration probably comes in a bit more than just feeding back raw numbers and just going, here's the report, make of it what you will. We try and have those informal conversations all the time with coaches.
0: Mm -hmm. And one thing that's obviously come up a lot, because it's been a big part of what you guys have done, is the GPS side of things and actually the integrity of what you're getting. Um, what what was the process that you went through? Because it's it's come up loads of times on chats with people, given the amount of sports tech that's out there. It doesn't just relate to GPS, but it's nice to talk about it because it's uh, obviously in context. What was the process you went through when choosing your provider? Uh, So I suppose initially we were
1: probably kind of went out to tender nearly. I think if you chat to... Maybe, I think, I think as far as I remember, it went out to tender and then a specific company, we tested a couple of units. So, what we did is we put it through, uh, the Daniel Hiscock track. So, it's like a, a U-shaped track. Uh, so we mapped that out with a trundle wheel. We'd speak gates there and we'd a radar gun as well. And we just compared different units and we found that, like, most of the units were kind of similar with, particular, with specific metrics. Okay, you have different names for different metrics, but. In terms of, I suppose, validity and reliability, the one study we have done is on the VX Sport unit and came out as being fairly accurate for total distance. And obviously the quicker the speed of movement, the less accurate the unit was. I suppose most of these validity reliability studies are going on all the time. I think people are just very curious as to where, say, specific algorithms are coming from. Is there a filter associated with an algorithm? Uh, Is there, can we have absolute confidence in specific metrics, whether they're collision metrics or high-speed running, sprint running metrics? And I suppose you really, really, if you export out your raw data and you dump it into, like, your positional coordinates on a map, you'll find out very quickly where your GPS unit sits, really. You want to make sure that it's providing really, really good data. And we just, easy way to do it is just a simple validity study, like you can run the lap of a pitch, you could run... A 400 meter track with different beeps for different speeds, map out cones. I know Martin Bouchette has done some studies where he's done, say, soccer specific tracks. Like it really depends what sport you're in and I suppose what you want to look at on a GPS. I suppose if you want to add that to the training. Yeah, I suppose just building on that, the, the thing
2: that the advice you'd have for people is really test, test the equipment if you're going to use it. And if you want to have confidence in that equipment, you have to test it. Um, because they don't always do what they say on the tin. Um, so yeah, like we've, we've done it before. Um, like we've had issues before where you've plotted the, the actual coordinates on a pitch and they don't show up on that pitch and they show up
1: somewhere a couple of of miles away. Yeah. Like that's not. (laughs) Like yeah, yeah, like there's there's some like I suppose it happens with all technology, like you can't just say it's GPS alone. Like if you look at any technology out there, like like I suppose the thing that kinda intrigues me with some validity and reliability studies, and I even put that on my own one, is that we use say two units, we compared both units to each other and we ran around a pitch with those two units. All that validity and reliability study says is that those two units are accurate. It doesn't represent the seventy or the thirty-five units that you're going to get off the company. That as you get more units, or as like you drive a car more, the risk of crashing increases. As you get more GPS units, the risk of one being a dud probably increases as well. Like and I think it's the same with most technologies. It's just that we've had some uh, intriguing cases where we've dumped raw data into different platforms, and you'd be shocked at where some people come up on a on a on a world map.
0: Thanks for tuning in to episode 180 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So massive thanks to the two Shane's for giving up their time, not only for this part one, but also for part two, which is going to go live next week. So this is a bit of a scene setter is uh, is part one, but part two goes into a ton more detail with regards to uh, discussion around absolute versus relative uh, periodization uh, and training depending on opponents, which is a really interesting chat, and we get to um, Get a little bit of insight into what goes on in the day-to-day workings of a gaa club um, giving context with regards to feedback uh, using art using some visualization tools so really interesting chat coming up next week as a part two with these guys so also a big thanks to Val performance to force decks and to fatigue science for sponsoring this episode today so hope you enjoyed uh, make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player And obviously you will get part two next week um, straight onto your phone or tablet. So thanks again for tuning in and I will speak to you soon.